Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I did not get results, they did not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich, and I have with me Matthew Scarfo. He is an endurance athlete, corrective exercise specialist, human movement specialist. He's got 20 plus years in the fitness and health industry and uh, with an array of certifications and titles behind his name. And so I am really looking forward to this conversation because as you know, this is kind of my bailiwick. This is what I've been doing for 26 years is performance training, helping athletes go from injuries to gold medals. And so that is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just so excited to have this conversation today with Matt. Um, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this industry and why it's so important to you? Sure. So um, my name is Matthew Scarfo. Um, I'm a certified personal trainer, among a number of other things. I got into the fitness industry about 21 years ago, almost as a lost soul. Um, I was a I didn't do very well in school. I dropped out of high school. The only thing I really ever always fell back on was fitness and exercise. And when I was younger, it was more about aesthetics and strength as opposed to performance and functionality, though. One day I was working out in my parents' basement and my mother came downstairs and said, listen, you don't do anything. You dropped out of high school. Um, you're, you're really not racking up any points here. So why don't you pursue a career in fitness and personal training since this is what you love to do um, and you do it anyway? Uh, why don't you invest some time and some effort into figuring that out? So I took her advice. I became a personal trainer uh, shortly thereafter. I uh, got my first job as a personal trainer at a local mom and pop, a big gym, but a, but a local gym nonetheless. And I moved my career from there 10 years later to opening up my own private personal training and performance studio in Morristown, which is now closed thanks to the protracted shutdown due to COVID. But, you know, nonetheless, it's, uh, it was a pivot point and, and I think a big positive for me. And um, over the course of my career, I've just pursued more information, more knowledge, more understanding. And, um, and, and it's taken me to being a performance athlete myself, an endurance athlete myself. So whether it's obstacle course races like Spartan runs or ultra runs or any of the other recreational crazy things that I do, I've been known to do tire flips for a few miles or walking lunges for a few miles, um, all in a all for the fact of just you know, putting myself in a physical situation and experimenting with different things that 
that I've come across and that I've learned to see if there's any applicability, not just to my own fitness, but to my clients as well. Nice. Miles of lunges. Just imagine mm -hmm. that if you're in the audience, do, do 10 lunges and <laughs> see how far you are. And then imagine that you've done that for one full mile. That's, you know, to, to so many people that is un tenable, unattainable, uh, you know, unconscionable, right? <laughs> and so yeah. it's a lot of uns. So where's the mental acuity that comes with pushing your body that far? You know, like how does, how does, how does that work on a brain? So I'm a firm believer and a practitioner of if you can run five miles, you can run 50. If you can do 50 lunges, you can do a thousand lunges. So long as that you're not in a, a physically deleterious condition where you're not quote unquote pushing through an injury, as long as you've got healthy joints, healthy muscles, healthy bones, and your energy systems are sufficient to perpetuate that kind of activity. And after you've already run five miles, the energy systems aren't going to shift. You're already aerobic at that point. You could got enough energy stored in your body to do that for quite a long time. So tire flips, it's very much the same. Lunges, it's very much the same. If you could do a handful, you can do them all. And in terms of the, the headspace that you have to achieve, it's just a matter of boredom, I suppose, would be the easiest way to boil it down because you... After, so a mile is about a thousand and nine walking lunges for me. And um, it took me, it, it takes me a little bit over, say like an hour, hour and 10 minutes or so to get them done. And it's not, the, the pain that I feel at lunge number 800 is no different than the pain that I feel after lunge number 400. It's finding a goal and, and working towards that goal. It can't, be open-ended because if it's open-ended then your your decision to stop is also open-ended it's success is no more than a lunge away failure or you know the end of the activity is no more than a lunge away so giving myself a particular goal and then working towards it knowing that every step i take is a step closer so in terms of the the mental acuity i mean there's certain tricks that that i play that other endurance athletes play on themselves to to keep these activities going for however long they need to go on for mine in particular is i, I tell myself that i've already finished the activity um you know i'm already at the finish line waiting for you i'm just waiting for enough time to pass so my body can catch up to the reality that i've already created so what i'm doing is actually fulfilling what I'm doing is I'm, I'm fulfilling the past that is necessary in order for me to have accomplished what it is that I'm, that I'm looking for. Now I had mentioned before we had gone on air that I'd, I'd listened to a few conversations that you had. And one of which you had mentioned a book, I believe it was called the science of getting rich. Right. Right. Is that, does that ring a bell? Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's an, that's an old book too. That's written by like, um, to I think it was originally or 19 close to like it was the early 1900s that that book was was created and um it's the basis for the movie the secret for the entire law of attraction you know world that has mm -hmm. that has been 
proliferated in the last probably uh, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Sure. And there's so much truth to that book. I had, it's a short book. Um, the audio book's only about an hour, actually. And I remember listening to it on a particular run that I was on. And there's so much truth to everything that is stated in that book. And what I do is I, I, I pick a reality. What's the reality that I want? The reality that I want is, um, I'll give you another example. Back at the end of May, I decided to run from my house in North Jersey down to Washington, D.C. It's about 411 kilometers away. And the only way that I was able to do that, and it, and it took a lot of meditation. It took a lot of praying. Um, I, I do most of the time use those two terms interchangeably with all due respect to whoever we gain our conscience from. But I wouldn't have been able to achieve that or any other goal for that matter if I didn't already see myself having accomplished it. And then making that future a certain future by by backfilling in the events that have to occur between now and then. So if I were to quit doing anything that I had set my mind to it, I'm, I'm essentially changing a future that I've already believed in. So it's it's staying on task. It's staying on track. It's reminding ourselves why we're doing this and reminding ourselves that, you know, there is no future that exists other than the future that we've created for ourselves in this future casting or in this mind experiment. You know, I'm, I'm already there. My body's already there. I'm just waiting for the time to pass. So this way, my now body kind of walks through the still frame of my then body that's there waiting for me. And, um, and, and just keeping, keeping my head focused or completely unfocused is sometimes also the trick, but um, you know, it really doesn't take much. We, we all do it in, in varying degrees every single day, regardless of what the task is. Um, and I've always found it to be interesting that, you know, if we're running late for work and we anticipate getting to work nine minutes late, we end up getting to work nine minutes late. If we anticipate achieving something in a certain amount of time, it's almost as though the future conspires to make that so. So if we set a goal and we give ourselves an objective that we're going to hit, do or die, the universe has a, has an interesting way of conspiring to make sure that, that that's true. It's almost as though we create the future by thinking it in a sense. And, and that's, um, that's part of my, one of my tricks in my bag of tricks. That's pretty fascinating. The, the, that's how organizational planners create business plans. That's how uh, operational, you know, organizational and operational planning happens. That's reverse engineering of anything really is, is what you're talking about. But you're taking the next step of future planning and then backtracking it and then you're, you're, you're taking that next step, which most people don't do, which is they see the future they want. They believe in the future that they want. They plan for the future that they want. And then they see that plan and they go, oh, my God, I don't really want that. <laughs> right. So mm, what, true. Yeah. what has made the difference between making the plan and then doing the actions that are in the plan and doing them consistently enough that you get the result that you're after. I think that it is largely 
a challenge for everybody. It's not the first mile that's the hardest. It's it's getting your shoes on and getting outside. That's that's often the hardest part. We know, and I and I've got three kids, three young kids, and and when they get in one of their moods or they get frustrated with something that they're doing, I tell them just find yourself doing what it is that you want to be doing. Turn the brain off and just find find yourself outside walking on the street. That'll turn into the run. But you, you can make that five minutes it takes from getting your shoes on to walking to the end of the driveway feel like a very painful eternity if you're dreading it. But rather than dread it, make the commitment that that's what you're going to do and then turn your brain off. You put your shoes on, you find yourself outside and, and now look at this, I'm running. So it's, it's not the first step. It's the hardest. It's, it's getting, it's walking yourself up to the staircase. That's the most difficult part because action creates action. And if you take that first step, you're going to take the second step. So when my kids get into a bad mood, one of the tactics that I've used with them, my son in particular is a little tough. Sometimes he's uh, seven years old. I tell him, I'm like, listen, you don't need a reason. You don't need an excuse. Go into the bathroom, close the door. I don't care what you do in there, but when you come out, I want you to have shifted your entire state. I want you to change your mentality. You can walk out of that bathroom anybody you want to be. You're walking in that bathroom as somebody, Clark Kent for that matter, and you're walking out as Superman. You can change your state immediately. You just have to make sure that you are doing it with great intent and you're doing it with great deliberation. You can't just walk in and walk out. Nothing's changed. You need to walk in and tell yourself that you're going to walk out and be confident and be empathetic and be happy, compassionate, smart, and caring. And when you come out of that, when you open that door and you walk out, you're, you're much closer to that goal that you set than you were to any other goal that was even available to you before you walked in. You were in trouble before you walked in that door. So for us, we don't have to walk into the bathroom. We could simply close our eyes, take a few deep breaths, visualize what it is that we want to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at the finish line just yet. You can visual, close your eyes, visualize yourself getting your shoes on, put your shoes on, take another few seconds, visualize yourself walking down the driveway, you're walking down the driveway. Now visualize yourself finishing your 5K or crossing the finish line or, or completing what it is that you've already done because what you're doing is you're laying the groundwork for it. And if, and if you, you do that mentally, that's really half of, that, that's half of anything. I mean, that's, all great things begin with intent. We, we need that instantiation. We need, th there needs to be a, an intent in the direction of, of what we're trying trying to achieve. And without that, we end up walking in circles. We end up biting our nails. We end up procrastinating. We end up wondering, worrying. We end up doing all of those things. So as opposed to doing that, just find that step forward. What, what is that next motion that you need to perform in order to get closer to that run? And, and you don't have to think about all the bits and pieces of it at first. It's just, what do I have to do in order to run? I got to get my shoes on. Okay, I'm going to get my shoes on. I don't want to run. We're not talking about that right now. Just put your shoes on. Great. What do I have to do next? Got to walk to the end of the driveway. I don't want to walk to the end of the driveway. Turn that off. Just find your ass at the end of the driveway. And now that you're there, it's going to take a whole lot more effort to turn around and walk back inside than it would be to take that first next step. So it's extremely important for us to, to visualize not just the end result, but what's that next step going to be until we can get over that hump and then momentum begins to take us in the direction that we're trying to go. That's always worked for me. That's I, I like how detailed that is. And I like how, uh, 
you know, the step by step by step. Uh, as you know, my background is working with Olympic athletes and, and pro athletes, and I normally got them post injury. And mm-hmm. post injury, anybody who, who has an injury is trepidatious to do the thing that caused the injury. One of my mm-hmm. things was I, I did a double flip over a car at 45 miles an hour off my motorcycle. Literally, it was a tuck pike gymnastics, martial arts kicked in, in the middle of what happened. I got hit at 45 miles an hour, T-boned. And I literally tuck, pike, double flip over the car, landed on my feet. Unfortunately for me, was wearing uh, sandals and shorts, which I don't recommend when you're riding a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) I I, I didn't have a broken bone in my body. I didn't have uh, you know, uh, damage, sprain, anything I did have is road rash, uh, massive road rash. Mm-hmm. Other than that, nothing. And one of the first things that I did when I could was I got on my friend's bike and I started to ride it with Olympic athletes. They mm-hmm. are ready to get back on the horse, but they're trepidatious and their trainers, their coaches, their, their people who are not skilled in multiple modalities, typically they're, they're, they're pretty narrow focused and they'll tell them, you you know, he'll never be as good as he was. So for example, like Kobe Bryant got injured and Gary Vitti, you know, was saying he'll be about 70%. We're used to that. It's okay. You know, we're used to this in the, in the industry. And I went and I, I, I talked to Mitch Kupchak and I was like, no, he could be about 110% of what he was if he's trained properly. And all you need, mm-hmm. you know, like how much money is going to cost you for him to be out? And how much money is like, that was the conversation I had with him. Well, sure. And, uh, and the thing is, is, is when somebody is injured or weak, or they feel weak in some way, and they feel like, that's going to be something that is going to stop them. And, you know, this is, goes for me too. I got in a car accident, had back to neck surgery and things like that. And I become a little trepidatious when I don't have proper trainers to work with me, even though I know what to do. You always need a coach, in my opinion, somebody to see the things and, you know, that, that you can't see. And so I become mm-hmm. trepidatious. I don't want to work out. I don't want to do push-ups. I don't want to do exercises, right? Because <laughs> I'm going to hurt myself again. So if somebody is listening to this and they're hearing you say, just walk out the door, just put on your shoes. That is a really good first step, even if you don't actually go outside. If you get the shoes on one day and then the next day mm-hmm. you open the door, and close the door. And then the next day you open the door and you go outside. And then the next day you go and do the walk, you know, to the driveway. And then the next day you'd walk down the block. And then the next day you walk a mile, you know, like taking those baby steps is really important. Now I learned some of this through National Academy of Sports Medicine, and you've been an NASM grad progressions equal results, right? If you try to do it all at once, you create more injury. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that and 
how do you motivate, how do you get somebody to have a belief that they can do something when they're injured and they don't feel like, like they can, there's no hope left? I'm so glad that you asked me this question. So I myself, I've got, I've got a history of injuries as well. Nothing as dramatic, thank goodness, as, as motorcycle or car accidents. And, and I'm glad that you're well. But I had a slip and fall about 15 years ago on ice that ended up giving me compression fractures in T6 through T10, which turned into degener degenerative arthritis, which has uh, depleted the bone mass of each of those vertebrae by 20 to 30%. So I've got stenosis, I've got arthritis. Um, I did not opt to go for that fusion simply because that procedure, they go in from the front. And I'm, I was already a father at that point uh, when, when we were across the bridge of talking about the surgery. And I wasn't gonna let them deflate my lung and move my heart out of the way to get into this thing. I said, when I'm no longer able to carry my kids, we'll talk about it, but until then I'll suffer. Um, my lower back, L4, L5, uh, the, the disc is gone. It looks black on, a, on the MRI. L5S1 also gone. I've got characteristic uh, sciatica running down both my legs. It's always there. And, it, and, it, and, I'm, and I'm always managing pain as well. But one thing that I've coached my clients with, and I've practiced this, is, and, and I tell them this all the time, it's, it's not a problem unless it's a problem. So if you anticipate it being a problem, I, I guess to go back to what we had spoken about before, you're future casting that this thing is going to interrupt you in some way. But rather, when we've got an injury and everybody's got something, whether it's a shoulder, a wrist, an elbow, a knee, a hip, whatever, what I, what I advise my clients to do is you're, you're moving around with compromised movement patterns simply because you're anticipating the pain. A pain that is never going to, not necessarily ever going to spike or become an issue, but because when we move in a particular way or in a particular range of motion and we begin to feel the sensations that remind us that there's an injury there, we hit the brakes on it right away. Now, and I've had clients say, nope, I want to stop there. I don't feel safe about it. So, well, all right, well, let's unload the machine for a second and move you through the movement. Let's find out exactly where is the red line, because if you're operating in orange, that's a perceptual orange. That red line is reflexive. That's where you don't have a choice. You're going to pull your hand away from the flame without even thinking about it. But you could bring your hand intentionally pretty close to that flame without being burned or without causing a problem. And that's something that only the client or the individual is really going to know, because even as, as great of a trainer as I claim to be, and, and I, I, I claim to be a, a, a functional empathist where I can feel my clients moving through their motions. I can feel the tensions. I can feel the mobilities. I could, I could be in that movement with them, but I still can't feel what it is that their nervous system is telling them. So I tell them move through a range of motion and slowly don't be afraid. You're going to feel it. it's going to be uncomfortable. Find where that red line is because you've got from being completely motionless and at rest all the way through that yellow zone and up into that red line before it becomes a problem. So don't restrict yourself because you're afraid of being uncomfortable. You're going to be uncomfortable. If I yielded to all of my issues and all of my pains, I would never get off of the couch. So it's important to figure out where is it really a problem instead of anticipating that it's going to be a problem if you move any farther, 
do it in a safe and a controlled way, unloaded or with an extremely light load and move that shoulder through a range of motion. Where do you feel it? Okay, it hurts. Can you move it a little bit farther? Is it getting louder or is it staying the same? Because you have, you'll have all of that available range of motion if you use it safely and, and deliberately and you stay connected to the joint and the muscles and the tensions. You're not just throwing the weights around or, or moving your body carelessly through space. So figure out where the problem actually begins, not when it begins to warn you that it might be there or not. That's first of all. And then second of all, we, whether we use that because we want to procrastinate or we want to use it as an excuse, the fact is that we have way more ability than we give ourselves credit for. Now, when we were children and we would bang young child, I've got a three-year-old also, and I, I see her do this. She'll bang her elbow on the table pretty hard and that'll ruin her whole day. I mean, that's it. That, that pain is there. She cries about it. She whines about it. You know, it, it, you could see that she plays with it, you know, and it doesn't bother her, but then when somebody's paying attention, it'll hurt her more. As time goes on and she or you or I have banged our elbow X amount of times over the course of our life and over the course of our development, that same impact with the same velocity in the same place and the same tissues hurts less and less. It doesn't actually hurt less and less because if we were to put you up to a brain scan and take a look at what's going on, your brain is having the very same reaction to it now here, me, 41 years old as it did when I was two years old. On paper, it looks exactly the same, which changes our perception of that pain. Now, over the course of these 40 ensuing years, there may have been opportunities where I banged my elbow and I was in front of somebody I was trying to impress. So I, I bury it. I build a layer on top of it. I might be out in public where if I bang my elbow and I show weakness or I look like a sissy, that that'll be detrimental to my reputation. So I bury it again. And little by little, we create these layers on top of these, these, these sensations, these injuries, where the brain still sees it the same way. It's just the person that's experiencing it is a different person now. So we, we have to get comfortable with the fact of walking it off so long as it's not going to create greater problems. And again, it's up to the individual to really determine where is that yellow turn into orange and then where is it finally red. But if we build a thick enough skin on top of our injuries, on top of my sciatica, my stenosis, my degenerative arthritis, it's all still there, but I don't give it a voice. I, I do when it's gotten to a particular point and I'm whether I'm, I'm stressed or I'm tired and it hurts a little bit more. But the fact is that we could probably work through way more things than we give ourselves credit for. And whether we err on the side of caution because we're overly cautious or we err on the side of caution because we're, we're just not motivated enough to, to care to proceed, the fact remains that we, we create this bubble that we end up moving within to avoid any sensation of discomfort or pain. And inevitably what that does is that changes our movement mechanics that changes the length tension relationships of the muscles and the joints that they govern so on and so forth and over time that leads to greater problems and we see this in the aging population we see the rounded back we see the internally rotated shoulders we see the protruding neck we see issues in the lumbar spine because they're trying to accommodate for all of their pains and their injuries they end up sticking themselves in a very very small box that eventually you're not able to you're not able to work your way out of. So take up as much space as you can, move through as much space as you can, use your mobility as best as you can, find a resistance that you can move through space as much as you can and experience the discomfort that accompanies your injuries. 
but figure out where that line is. Where does it actually turn into pain? When are we being overly cautious? And when are we being appropriately cautious? And we'll find that we've got a whole lot more room than we think that we do. That's a, that's a good explanation. I know for me, uh, I have, I have all kinds of issues, but uh, that's why I got into the field to begin with. But one of them is a brain tumor. And when I was about 24 is when they found it. So I had been treated since I was about 12 before they found it. And it's a pituitary tumor causes all kinds of hormone imbalances, uh, had to be injected into puberty, breast reduction surgery when I was 14, um, wow. weight gain, all those kinds of things. So I was an athlete. I'm eight years gymnastics, eight years uh, with uh, baseball, martial artist. Uh, tennis player, long distance cycler. I'm an athlete who's gaining weight, gaining weight, gaining weight, gaining weight. Right. And so I'm 24 years old. They finally find the tumor and they start drugging me up. And um, when they did that, the drugs made it so that it was actually difficult for me to even leave my house. The mechanism of choice in there of like, I couldn't even sometimes get myself out onto the balcony. You know, mm-hmm. I could always make an appointment though. I could always keep, keep my obligations. But as soon as I was done with that obligation back in the house <laughs> and like hard for me to, it was hard for me to get out. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear you say, okay, so what if I just open the door? What if, you know, like, so people have these anxieties, these, these um, fears, phobias, agoraphobia. I had a friend whose dad was agoraphobic for probably 15, 20 years. I, I actually wow. spent a week at his house and I never met him that week, like ever. <laughs> he was that. Wow. So the question becomes, The mental side, the chemical side, right? Because chemistry has a lot to do with it. So you have a nutritional background as well as, as some of the other things that you have. So let's talk a little bit about how food makes motivation either easier or less, right? So how, does, how, do, how do we get the chemistry right so that the brain can be right? Or is it the brain before the chemistry or how do they interact with each other so that motivation, energy, uh, expression of that energy, et cetera, those kinds of things are really in alignment with the goal and purpose. So I've got a a few things that I can comment on that with. First, I think in terms of chemistry, uh, if, if I could give anybody a single piece of advice that I think would change their lives. And this goes for every single person on this planet. It would be that your mouth isn't made for breathing. Your nose is made for breathing. Your mouth is an eating and chewing organ and not a breathing organ. And you've got specialized structures within your face. We have an external nose. We have internal sinuses. We've got twists and turns in there, which add vortices to the air. Our nasal passages produce nitric oxide, which allow us to really change our blood chemistry and our brain chemistry before we even eat a single thing. 
So we can go without food for weeks, water for days, air for minutes. So, and we, and we often breathe improperly. We're made to breathe through our nose. We're made to have higher concentrations of carbon dioxide in our blood than we're taught to have. So we're taught that oxygen is, you know, we breathe to get oxygen in, which isn't true. We, we breathe to expel carbon dioxide. We don't breathe to inhale oxygen. So I've done certain uh, tests. I actually bought a blood oximeter and, and used it when I ran and, and pushed myself to 204, 210 beats a minute, which is, which is very high performing for me. And sucking wind, I check my blood oxygen. It's 94%. It's the same as when I'm resting or when I'm sleeping. But the problem is I'm, I'm breathing heavy because I'm trying to expel the, the waste products of my activity and, and aerobic activity, which is carbon dioxide. So I think that it starts, it really starts there. If we're mouth breathing and we're chest breathing and we're panic breathing, then we're always in a state of anxiety and we're always in a state of stress, fight or flight. And, and there might be the foundation or at least the first few floors of our anxiety issues is no matter what we eat, no matter what we practice, if we're breathing improperly, we very well could always be in a stress state, which would then precipitate improper eating, improper food choices, impulsive food choices, and so on. So I think that it really all starts with, with breathing, with nose breathing at a, at a calm and relaxed pace, getting used to that, sleeping with your mouth, sleeping with your mouth closed, um, exercising with your mouth closed. I'm an avid, whenever I work out, I'm always a nose breather. Even when I have the elevation mask on, I'm always breathing through the nose. It's taken a little bit of practice, but it takes less practice than most people think. Now, in terms of diet, if we were to eliminate that from the equation and assume that we were all breathing properly and perfectly, in terms of food, there are certain stress-inducing foods. And I think that there's probably some that apply to all of us. And then there's some that apply to certain individuals. Like we still don't know exactly how, um, for example, somebody with a gluten sensitivity, when they consume gluten that might be buried in a food somewhere, that doesn't just affect their digestive system, which is also the house of our immune system, which again, stress response and so on. But it affects, it could affect their joints, it could affect their mind state, it can affect them anything. So whether you are allergic to the gluten or, or, or lactose or, or beans or whatever the case is, I think that if it's important to explore and know what kind of sensitivities we have to foods because they manifest themselves in other ways besides just digestive issues. Um, we're also kind of up against the, 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 machine that is the food industry or the commercialized food industry and many people don't realize it but there's a reason why starburst or red yellow orange pink there's a reason why these lollipops are bright and blue and red because these are the colors of fruits and and good foods for us as they appear in the wild so they're appealing to a subconscious need that we have and to procure these foods from you know thousands and thousands of years ago. So they trick us into eating these foods that are, that are terrible for us. The only redeeming quality they have is that they trick the brain into thinking that it's necessary. So therein lies the, the neurochemical responses, you know, the, the dopamine kind of leads us up to that event. And then, you know, we, we, we eat it. And now we've got, you know, the feel good chemicals rush and let us know that this was a very rewarding and good experience when in fact it didn't do anything for us at all, except make us sick or, or interrupt 
our, our functions as they should be. I mean, we, as a, as a culture, we haven't really spoken much about additives and preservatives and artificial colors and all of these other things. We, we, we talk mostly in terms of macronutrients and, and though that's important, a calorie isn't a calorie. Your body treats fructose much, much different than it treats glucose. And, and therein lies the problem because this high fructose corn syrup devoid of any kind of fiber or anything like that increases your sugar level. It increases your heart rate. It increases your anxiety responses and increases so much. So in terms of nutrition and diet and the things that we could be eating, should be eating in order for us to kind of subdue the natural anxiety that we all have in this modern world. I, I regret to say my best guess is that it would be pretty bland fermented foods, um, organ meats, bone marrow broths, fibrous fruits and vegetables, um, you know, zero, absolutely zero sweetened anything. Even if it's stevia, it doesn't matter. It's just not supposed to be there. Um, and, and relying on the natural sweetness of foods to recalibrate our taste buds and not overwhelm and not to have them overwhelmed with these foods that are hundred percent sugar. So I think it's important to, to feed your brain first and foremost um, with a balanced diet. Now what's a balanced diet that really depends on who you talk to. My, my school told me that, you know, generally healthful diet is 60% carbs, 20, 25% fats and 15, 20% uh, proteins. I mean, we need far less protein than we're led to believe. Um, and, and I think that they're, I don't know the studies behind it, but I'm sure that that creates some sort of stress. I mean, it creates stress on our, on our kidneys in order to metabolize these things. But, you know, we need for, for a woman who even wants to build mass, I've always consulted that, you know, 0.4 to 0.6 grams per pound of body weight is like just fine. You don't need to supplement a protein shake. When a woman asks me what kind of protein shake should I have? I say, why are you drinking a protein shake at all? chances are you're getting sufficient protein, even more than enough protein than you need. Same thing with men, bodybuilders. Magazines will tell you two to four grams per pound. Uh, may, maybe a gram at most, they'll still get you exactly what you want. But we don't live in a culture of, of sufficiency. We live in a culture of excessiveness. Better more than not enough. And, and I, I think we're going to find out eventually that what we thought was not enough before is plenty. So I think just mindful eating, being careful of the things that we're putting in our mouth and that we're asking our bodies to digest and metabolize and excrete because some of those things don't excrete uh, depending on the kinds of fish that you eat, the sources that you get them from, the heavy metals and so on. So just being mindful of, of what we're eating, trying to eliminate sugar as best as we can from our diet, any kind of added sugar and um, not being afraid of fat. I mean, fat, fat is generally a good thing as long as it's not hydrogenated fats, if it's a natural fat that occurs in a steak or fish or an avocado, like these things are okay. You wouldn't supplement fat, but, but as part of a whole, you know, they were designed in a particular way, which would benefit us the most. And, and that's why we consume them. Right. So, so here's, here's my, my take. Um, and mostly what you're saying, I agree with the, the high carb thing. There is no essential carbs. There's essential fiber that you <laughs> right? But there's no essential carb that your body is required to have in order to function at an optimal level. Grains, in fact, from bread, whatever you have with grains, absorb minerals. So when you're eating 
the grain, if you're eating bread or for instance, and it's like a whole grain, I'm, I'm eating whole grains or even quinoa, rice, things like that, wheat, they absorb minerals. So when you eat them, they absorb, when you eat the mineral, like you take in a mineral supplement and then you eat the, the food, the mineral supplement does not go into your body. The, the mineral supplement goes into the food that you just ate and it's passed right through you instead of, and if you saw my, my body motion is I'm showing, <laughs> but <laughs> passes right through you. But uh, if, uh, if, if you eat those kinds of high grains, you literally become mineral deficient. Not only that, but the soil itself is mineral deficient. So the mineral, the grains don't have the mineral content that they used to have anyway. But if you eat meat, you're eating everything that that meat ate, ate right? Mm -hmm. so that's why it's important to choose your meat well. Uh, protein is absolutely in our culture, you know, gotta make gains, I gotta make gains, right? This is what I hear from my, my, uh, my kid, you know, when he, when he was working out and he was in high school, I gotta make gains, right? I gotta build up the bulk. And, uh, and so all, everything was about, was about the protein. So protein and meats and things are not part of our normal everyday diet, but berries, Things that you hunt and gather are what are part of a natural mm -hmm. human diet. If you hunt it, if you can gather it, that is part. If you cultivate it, not part of the diet, right? So when you cultivate corn, especially in a field and only corn in that field and hybridize it so it's got a heavy amount of sugar in it, because we've hybridized and genetically modified it, not good for you. So I would say, I get that NASM and, and a lot of people have, have put that carb on this pedestal, the carbs on the pedestal, but my feeling is fat should be put on a pedestal. Good fats should be put on the pedestal, pedestal more than the proteins or the, the high carbs. Proteins are good because they give you the essential amino acids. They give you, and that, that could be from spinach or kale, or, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be from meat or fish or, you know, that kind of thing. It could be from mm -hmm. any of those other sources, but things like nuts and nut fats, like coconut oil, we, we all have been hearing about MCT and the amazing benefits that MCT oil has. But the thing is, we want our fats to be of the high enough quality that it turns our brain on versus turning it off. If you're using canola oils and you know corn oils and these highly processed vegetable oils and seed oils, very, very inflammatory they cause all kinds of inflammatory disorders, right? But if you're eating the omega-3s, omega-9s, even omega-17, I think is, no, it's B17, <laughs> it's cancer one, but uh, different omegas, the, the good linoleic acids and things like that, um, those are essential for your body. And I think what most people don't understand is our brain is made up of fat and cholesterol. 
that's what causes it to be. It exists because of fat and cholesterol. Mm -hmm. We starve ourselves of fat. We starve ourselves of our thinking mind. And we end up getting all kinds of disorders. And in fact, in, in endurance athletes, I've been seeing this a lot. They're moving away from the carb loading days mm-hmm. for a competition or before a race or a marathon and starting to fat load. And they're finding mm-hmm. that their joints are much less you know, uh, inflamed at the end, they cramp less, there's all kinds of less issues because they're fat loading mm-hmm. versus carb loading. So I may or may not be disagreeing with you. I'm just, you know, going based on, on what you said, but that would be my take on, on it. And just as a general thing, cause we brought up gluten, gluten is a poison, it's a protein and it's a poisonous protein that is in the plant to stop bugs from eating it. So bugs won't eat that plant mm-hmm. because that protein is poisonous to them. It will kill them. And so when we eat it, it doesn't matter if you're highly allergic on the top of the scale allergic, or if you're on the bottom of the scale, as far as a response goes, it's going to cause an inflammatory response no matter what. Now, mm-hmm. We have hybridized and genetically modified our, our wheat and so forth to have extra gluten. And then we started putting it at everything. I even saw a bottle of water that said mm-hmm. gluten-free. <laughs> they had to point that out. But um, anyway, so just let, you know, let's ha- have a little bit of back and forth about that. Thing. I, I just said a lot, so... What mm-hmm. is your so I think as an endurance athlete? So I, I think it's important that your audience knows that ever since the agricultural revolution is when our, our health as a society began to decline. Um, it was only after we started growing our own foods that, that we began to have problems with food. And let's keep in mind that back when the... Uh, FDA came out with the recommended daily allowances, that, that's not for optimal health. Uh, RDAs are for disease prevention. So that's the minimum that you should eat if you want to avoid things like beriberi or rickets. It's not a healthful amount. It is the minimum sufficient amount to keep you healthy. Uh, secondly, back in the, whenever it was, the, the, turn of the, 19, or the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, when the FDA was coming out with, you know, how much vitamin E is in a, you know, is in a carrot and how much calcium is in spinach. These were things that were grown on comparatively virgin soils. So to your point, these soils weren't stripped of everything that they would need in order to make a carrot from 1920, a carrot of modern day. So the fact that you know, spinach might have had a certain amount of iron way back in the day. It's not the same soil. We've we've depleted that soil so much that we have to fertilize it. And and what you're getting is a carrot or spinach or broccoli that looks like broccoli and tastes like broccoli, but it's not the same broccoli that we were having. So if you're relying on these food charts for different amounts of your your vitamins and your minerals from certain foods, you you're not eating enough. And that that's probably one of the stronger cases for 
taking a multi, whether you agree with it or not, is that we're not eating the same foods as what we were. Now, I used to take a multi. I stopped taking a multi. I kind of go on and off with it. Um, I, I don't necessarily believe in supplementing individual uh, compounds simply because they're, they're not found that way in nature. There, there's a, a congruence in the symbiosis with all of the vitamins and minerals that we eat. Um, and, and buyer beware, for example, when people are purchasing a multivitamin, you need to make sure that the proportions of certain compounds in there are, are proper, right? So, so zinc and copper are, are antagonistic. And, and one of the things that it's a, it's a correlation, it's not quite a causation, or at least not yet between low zinc levels and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And what we could do, and, and I grew up, I was diagnosed with that. It's a blanket kind of diagnosis for kids that just are hard to manage, I think, in a lot of cases. But we had acidic water in our home. We had a blue ring in our tub and a blue ring in our sink. And what that is, is that's elemental copper. I mean, that's, that's the worst kind of copper you could get. That's that, and, and oftentimes in cheap vitamins, that's the copper that they put in there. That's the iron that they put in there. These aren't bioavailable things. They're, they're sufficient that I could put them on a label and tell you how much they weigh and how much is in there. But in terms of how much your body can use, it's, it's fractional, if any, at all. And then you have to take into consideration the, the antagonistic behavior of certain things. You might not be getting, you might be actually excreting more than you're taking in from that particular multivitamin. Um, in terms of carbohydrates, you know, I, 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 I agree with you. Now, I eat carbohydrates just because I'm a, I'm a slave to my own habits. And my wife has celiac disease. She was diagnosed. She had the biopsy. And um, we've pretty much taken gluten out of everything in the house just so it's easier for her. But it's we'll have that really as just a, a calorie replacement for the for the meal. We have a very big stack of vegetables. We have a, you know, a couple of servings of meat and then we've got the starch on the side. And and you're right. And you don't need to eat agriculturalized carbohydrates, the ones that are present in the fruits and the vegetables and the tubers naturally occurring, those are going to be in there anyway. And those are accompanied by fiber and other nutrients that make them, that make them whole and make them usable. But, you know, to, to your point before about creating an inflammatory response, even if you're not necessarily sensitive to something like gluten, the barrier between the food that's digesting in our intestines and our bloodstream is one cell thick. It is a single cell thick. And there are certain mechanisms that allow the transportation of, of nutrients into or, or rather out of our intestines. But when there's an inflammatory response, what used to be neatly packaged cells that created one congruent layer where only these chemical messengers and transporters could allow things to go back and forth. It never creates gaps in between these cells. You get leaky gut syndrome, which creates a whole slew of problems. But what seems to be a, a reoccurring phrase here is inflammation and, and inflammation is the cause of disease. So anything that we can do to eliminate or, or diminish the amount of inflammation that we, that we acquire in response to the things that we eat and the things that we do and ingest and so on, the better off that we're going to be overall. Um, you know what? I don't, I don't want to argue with you about the, about the 60, the 25 and the 20, because honestly, I, I think that you are right. And in my own practice, when I've got the choice, I do eat more fatty foods before I exercise and before I work out. And I found, and I can say this with certainty, that it, it gives me greater endurance. Now, I, I never got into the keto diet. 
um, I know a little bit about it, but I know that the, that a ketone body is a very powerful, it's a very powerful molecule. It's a very powerful thing. And, and we derive more energy from it than we do from sugar. And it's a longer lasting energy. It takes some time for our body to get accustomed to using it as a sole source of energy. But I, I do know that sugar is inflammatory. Even in its natural state, it's generally inflammatory. And rarely do we ever find it in its natural state. We've gone away with high fructose corn syrup and now we, we call it something else, but it's the same exact thing. Natural. All in an effort for- It's called natural sweetener. Right. Right. So when you see, <laughs> so not, you know, you see, if you see natural sweetener on on the uh, on the the label, that's high fructose corn syrup. Now they they have gotten mm -hmm. the approval to put that through our FDA, our wonderful wonderful FDA. They they've gotten approval to call it a natural sweetener. So when you see something that says natural this or natural that, it doesn't necessarily mean healthy. Just, just an FYI. Right, right. And when, you, when you've got the alternative to take something like aspartame, which was originally supposed to be an insecticide, but they found out that it's 800 times sweeter than sugar. And at these small doses, it doesn't kill you. And they begin to put that in gum and this and that. I, I mean, probably talk days about this, but you know, the, the occurrence of issues that we see now that I didn't see even when I was a kid in school, the autism, the, the celiac disease, the peanut allergies, you know, every kid's got something and, and it's, nobody really wants to take a look at the environment because that's really what it is. It's, it's what we're feeding our kids. It's what we're subjecting our children to. It's, it's the adaptations that we're expecting our body can already manage these these foods these foreign substances these foreign chemicals and compounds when in fact it's stressful and the problems that we experience from them downstream i, I think are only beginning to come to light this is going to get much much worse than it is now i've got a number of friends in my peer group that that needed fertility treatments for in order to have kids that's like common practice anymore and whether it's either over prescribed or it's just overly present now. There's a reason for that. And it's because of our environment. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the carbohydrates go, I, I, I think you're right. I don't think you're right. I, I know you're right. And, and I can base that really all on just one fact. And that is, if you look at when we started growing our own food, that's when the problem started to happen. Um, I'm a hunter. I, and I've had this conversation with, with vegetarians and vegans and, you know, with all due respect to anybody's eating habits or, or food preferences, I prefer to eat wild game. And, and the reason is because these are animals that have lived a happy life. They've frolicked, they've ran around, they know what those feel good chemicals feel like when they enter their brain, they got to mate, they got to play. They, they didn't live in filth where they needed antibiotics just to keep them alive like the cows do. I mean, that's the only reason why cows get antibiotics is because they would die in the conditions that we would keep them in if they didn't otherwise have them. So, you know, this is, we're entering deer season up here in New Jersey for uh, for shotgun and muzzle order. And I prefer to have that meat. Well, it's cruel. There, there's not a single animal out there that's a prey animal that that dies of old age. They generally die a very traumatic death, whether they break a leg and they have to, you know, suffer that until it becomes infected and die or they get eaten by a pack of coyotes um so 
natural meats, well, harvested meats that are that have eaten a diet that is exactly what they are supposed to eat is critically important. Corn-fed beef is not a good beef. I mean, it's still beef, but it's just like we were talking about with the farming 100 years ago compared to today. It looks like steak, but your body doesn't treat it the same way it did. You know, it, it would have a cow 100 years ago. Right. So I think food choice is, is very important. And it's hard anymore because the marketing is so strong and the additives are so strong. They make it so we don't even have to chew our food anymore. It, it, everything's so palatable and, and easy to swallow. McDonald's, you don't even have to chew their food, their cheeseburgers. There's issues that when I had mentioned before that it's important for us to breathe through our nose, that becomes harder and harder when you've got a palate that is shrinking because you're not working your jaw muscles to chew the foods that we used to chew. I mean, if you wanted sugar 150 years ago, the only way you could get it was to eat this piece of bamboo, which would be sugar cane. You'd get a ridiculous amount of fiber from it and very little sugar, but your jaw would still work out. It would keep the structures in your face and your nose and in your breathing system conditioned and fit. And, and we lose that now. And, and that creates problem, more and more problems for us as more and more time goes on. Yeah, I, I'm old enough to remember when I could chew on a sugar cane, like a, a, a sliver mm -hmm. of sugar cane. And you know, I'm also old enough to remember when you would, we would walk through a berry field and the taste of a strawberry or the taste of a blueberry compared to the taste of them now, so much richer and more full flavored because the mineral content was there, because mm -hmm. it had all of the things necessary. I think that the statistic is if you were to eat like some broccoli today um, versus broccoli 50 years ago, the, the equivalent value is for every one that was one broccoli, you know, thing, uh, you have to eat like 15, 12 to 15 broccolis to equal the same amount of nutrients as one 50 years ago because of the depletion of mineral and, and nutrient content in, in the soil. So just as an interesting mm -hmm. thing, same thing with an apple. I think it's eight apples equals the equivalent nutritional value of one apple 50 years ago. However, we've hybridized the apples to have not the minerals, not the nutrients, but sugar. So apples today are mm -hmm. sweeter, 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 and high, high in sugar versus what they were years ago. I don't even drink, you know, I don't drink apple juice, orange juice, any, any of that kind of stuff anymore because of the amazing sugar content in it. And just as a, as a side to that, you know, when we're thinking about the food that we eat, you were talking about the meat and, and hunting. So I've never been a hunter. I, I, I've never been hunting. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, not really a good, a big hunting area, but my, my roommate, when I lived there, he, uh, he said that they attempted in his hometown, I think it was in like Missouri area or Minnesota. I don't remember. It was one of the M's. And he said that they, they stopped the hunting license for uh, a couple of years or something. They, they, they didn't want 
to to have all the you know the deer uh, killed and hunted. So they stopped mm-hmm. it for a couple of years. And what what ended up happening was that the things that the population overgrowth of the animal created an issue, not with the people or the humans, but they would get sick. They would eat too much of the, of the food because there's too many of them. And then they would get sick. Uh, they would have all kinds of other issues. And then they ended up dying and disease was starting to spread because of the way in which they were dying. So they reinstated the hunting in order to make sure that the population was down enough that they weren't having their own internal ecosystem issues, right? So hunting isn't necessarily mm-hmm. to me a cruel thing. It, it's not something that, that I don't know if I'd be comfortable with it just because I, I'm, it's not my, my nature, but, um, mm-hmm. or at least it's not something I've ever done. But just as a, as a side to that, you know, it's like we have this thing about being civilized and being in a civilization and how cruel it is to hunt. But it's supposedly not so cruel, at least for meat eaters, to treat our cows the way that we've treated them, to treat our chickens the way that we've treated them, to treat our our livestock in general, putting them in situations where they need to be, like they're, they're standing for their entire life in one spot, eating food that's not natural to their diet. Because when, when you see grain-fed meat, cows don't eat grains, they eat grass. They walk around, mm-hmm. they get exercise, they eat grass. That's what they do. And there's a natural cycle to it that makes it so that they're, they're very healthy when they are in that natural cycle. As soon as you take them out of that natural mm-hmm. cycle, you start giving them food that they're not health, that's not healthy. And then you start pumping them full of hormones to make them bigger to the point where they can't even hold their own weight in their legs because their muscles haven't been developed because they haven't been walking around. Okay. Now I'm talking Mm -hmm. to the audience right now a lot because I know that you know this. So I just want the audience to really understand what, what's the, the cost? What is the cost of spending a little bit of money on really crappy meat that causes you to have diabetes, cancer, inflammation, heart disease, et cetera, versus spending the little bit extra cost or extra money to get grass-fed, grass-finished meat or wild game that's been hunted, Mm -hmm. that's lived its life, that's been able to roam and work the muscles so that the fat that they produce is the beautiful fat that's really healthy for you. So I'm just saying this because I I want the audience to get, I'm not an anti-vegan, anti-vegetarian. I practiced veganism for a number of years, vegetarian for a number of years, raw food diet for a number of years. I'm not against that. And I I get the, the amazing empathy that they have for the animals that are being factory farmed. 
but factory Agreed. farms need to go. Factory farms, whether it's mm-hmm. agricultural or meat, need to go. It's not necessary. <laughs> How many millions and millions and millions of pounds of meat do we throw away every year because of it being diseased, because of it being, you know, uh, used in, uh, in ways that uh, are unhealthy, you know? I mean, it, millions of pounds. Well, how many cows can we stop, you know, breeding in, in this way? And how much room could we give them to move around if we stop wasting it because we're factory farming it? Right? Mm-hmm. No, no, granted, I don't think that cow hunting would be extremely exciting. Buffalo. Um, they don't seem to move very fast. Right, right. You know, cows, they don't seem to move very fast. They don't seem like they're very smart. They're not very camouflaged. But but your point's well taken that, you know, the reason why cows are given antibiotics is at least back in the middle of the 1900s, when they would be in these factory farms in New York City, they'd be in a warehouse that was elevated off the ground. They're put in this carousel. They're standing in their own excrement and they're ill. And the only way that we can keep them alive was to put them on an antibiotic life support. Turns out that when they're on this antibiotic life support that they produce more meat. Um, And now we have to give them hormones. This way they produce milk even when they're not calving and even when they're not pregnant. That's not the same milk chemically and, and as it is as if they were nursing a calf with it. So these animals are always under stress. They're always under stress and they're stressed. And that's a hormonal response. And that hormone is present in any of the meat that we eat. Now, not justifying or defending hunting, but for that matter, the animals that live in the wild live a happy life as God had intended. They're out there doing what, you know, what deer and squirrels and rabbits are meant to do. Uh, They're not being savagely ripped to pieces by predator animals. They're not, you know, being wounded and, and hopefully wounded and just left to die. I mean, as, as a hunter, and this is in defense of all hunters out there, we have a commitment and it's a very strong commitment that it's supposed to be a swift and painless kill. And if it's not guaranteed to be a swift and painless kill, then we let the animal go and we don't take the shot. Now there's a, you know, we, we know this very well now that, you know, there's always a, a bad few in every big group. Um, and I'm sure that hunting is no different, but, an animal that was harvested from the wild, that was eating what it, what it wanted to eat, that had the chance to raise calves and, and, and have relationships with other animals and experience life. It's a happier animal. It's better meat. We have um, chickens, actually, at our home. We've got about 30 of them. They're not meat chickens. They're egg chickens. They have an extremely large run, an extremely large coop, and we do let them free range daily. And the eggs that they produce compared to the eggs that we get in the store, the shells are almost hard to crack on the animals that we have here. Um, The skin inside of that shell is much thicker. Oftentimes the yolk is a much brighter orange and that's normal. That's not because of nutrients. That's really more from uh, the bioflavonoids that are in the foods that they eat. You can make a a chicken's yolk extremely orange if you gave it marigolds, but, um, but they eat hard shelled exoskeleton bugs and worms and leaves and, and they get to pick what they eat. That's a healthier egg. That's a healthier animal. Um, as opposed to the eggs that you get in the store, which it's about 
It's about quantity. It's how many eggs can we get out or how many things that look like an egg can we sell as an egg and get our money for. And it's, it's much different. If you can invest in, or you've got the opportunity to invest in free range eggs that are, uh, that are sourced from your local community with people that have chickens, you're going to pay a little bit more for them, but you will absolutely notice the difference in taste, uh, a difference in texture. There's a nutrient difference in them as well. Uh, it's just, it's just better as, as close as we can get back to how we were eating 150 years ago and longer is, is really how we should be eating now. Right. And um, for, for many people, it's just a convenience, you know, they don't want to hunt, but they'll, they'll take a steak from a cow that had its next, slit while it was living in a cage its entire life um, they'd rather pay an extra four bucks a steak to pay the middleman to handle the dirty work um, but the fact is is that 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 animal was abused and mistreated and it was and it was born to die um, it wasn't born to breed it wasn't born to do anything other than to provide for you meat and once it was able to do that it, its card was pulled so um, you know it, for those that are uncomfortable with hunting or, or eating hunted meat just, just think about where you're getting your meat from. You've got better options. There are better options. Uh, plenty of mail order places that you can get them from where the animals are humanely treated uh, and, and the food is done without antibiotics or without hormones. I mean, we're at a point now where if you look at a carton of milk and the cow wasn't given antibiotics, there's a promoter given uh, bovine growth hormone. There's a promotion for bovine growth hormone on that package. It says this animal was not given our... BGH. And then right underneath it, there's been no significant difference between the milk procured from an animal that was given this hormone and the milk that was not, which is saying that it's okay to drink the milk that was that that's tainted with this stuff. But I don't know about that. I, I don't believe it. So it's just, it's funny how they always get their jabs in and how, you know, the FDA is always, it seems as though they have an ulterior motive and a different, um, yeah, and a different agenda in, in yeah, there, there's actually a lot of evidence that, yeah, totally. that you know, you know, just the evidence of the graph. Like if all you did was put the health from 1950 and the health from 2020, well, not 2020, it's been an odd year. <laughs> <laughs> True. You, you get the idea. Just, just, do, just do the math. The graph from here. So the only disease and, and issues that we had prior to the Industrial Revolution agricultural revolution, I should say, was we had disease of lack of nutrient. So scurvy, as you said, rickets, things like that. And then, you know, bacterial viral issues, but most of it bacterial and viral issues did not cause any kind of chronic conditions. They were specific. They, they attacked people who had compromised immune systems because the nutrition was, was not, um, you know, readily available right there. So my question to you would be like, how can we scale a natural environment to feed the, the difference of population growth? Because I like solutions and, and I like really good solutions. And instead of just talking about the problem, I, I wanna have a solution oriented discussion about it too. So if we were to scale a natural world based on population growth. Do you think that, well, let me, let me just, before I give my, my possibilities, why don't you just tell yours, like, give me some solutions to this issue. So there's a lot of, um, 
around here in New Jersey and in the Northeast, there's, it's a lot of farming. I don't know how much farming goes on in LA, but there are um, CSAs, crop sharing. So, <laughs> so crop sharing associations where um, you basically pay your dues and you are entitled to a certain amount of, of organic, depending on the farm, organic fruits and vegetables and tubers and things like that. Um, I, I think that the very... I think at its very core, it starts with community and it starts with organization. So one, there needs to be a demand for it in order for there to be a supply to fill that demand. Um, you can't walk around looking for, you know, a solution, looking for a problem. We, we've got the problem and the problem is inadequate food choices and inadequate nutrients in those food choices. So how do we fix it? I think organization is a very big thing. Um, if you don't have a CSA in town, but you have a farm, it might be important to uh, approach them and, and see if they'd be willing to do some sort of CSA. Um, but, but awareness also, and, and taking the time to make sure that you pay attention when you go into a store, it'll only take you extra time the first one or two times when you go in there to look at what the other options are that are available to you, maintaining the same habit patterns that we have. So if you always go to food store A, take an extra 20 minutes and walk around and see what other options exist there. And, and if you can't buy it as it's already made, maybe perhaps you make it yourself. Um, back to the community part of it, maybe you've got a neighbor who makes great bread and you make great casserole. We can start there. But it's once we realize that we, we have way more time than we think that we do in order to make these things and, and create new habits in our daily life. And we also realize that our time is extremely limited and it's finite. The sooner we make the effort to make the effort, the better off that we're all going to be. So awareness is, is the key to it all, whether it's moving better, sleeping better, breaking habits, creating new habits, we need to be aware of what the circumstances and the situation is now. So it's important to take an inventory. And once we've got the inventory, I guess the low hanging fruit, any advancement would be progress. So if it's, I'm going to eliminate sweetened drinks from my diet, I think that's probably one of the greatest things that you can do from a diet standpoint. Um, just eliminate the, the, the added sugar, that's huge. Um, maybe consulting with your doctor and seeing if a multivitamin might be right for you. Choosing a multivitamin, doing your research and making sure that the, the compounds in that multivitamin are bioavailable and are taken from biological sources and not just dehydrated urine that's put into a capsule and like, here you go. So paying attention. We, we all know that our health is important to us. And if we don't know it now, there's a, there's a day and a time that's written in the book of life where the moment right before that, you know, that second hand hits the number it's supposed to, your life will be extremely important to you. And there are no redos. So every little effort we make now, whether you're 15, 20, 25, 60, 80, it's going to have an exponential effect on your overall health and development is for the rest of your life. And where there's smoke, there's fire. So if you can create one small, easy habit, you can build upon that. To your point before, if you practice putting your shoes on, you do that for a day, and then the next day you put your shoes on and you open the door. Then the next day you put your shoes on, you open the door and you walk outside. As hard as it was to put your shoes on on day one, 
it's actually much easier on day five and you still haven't even started running yet. It's just become part of that process, but it gives you something that you can build upon. And I think that that's really it. A lot of people look at their lifestyles and their diets and their exercise and try to figure out what's the one thing that they could do to fix the most things. And the answer to that is anything as small as it may be. It's just progress in that direction. You need to at least put your ante on the table, throw a quarter into the pot and say, I'm in for a quarter. I'm in for no iced tea at lunch today. I'm in for no iced tea at lunch tomorrow. And then next week it's unsweetened iced tea and, you know, something else later on in the day. But it's, it's incremental and, and things that seem insignificant are not insignificant if it plays out on a long enough timeline. And that long enough timeline is, you know, from this moment until the rest, until the last day of your life. Hopefully that's a very long time from now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My, my dad um, has had issues all his life this, since I've known him. Right. And his doctor told him that there's an insignificant amount of gluten to make a difference in his body. And so I said to him, okay, well, let's test this out. Let's test this, this, theory of the doctors out that there's an insignificant amount. So I said, what would happen dad, if you were to cut gluten out of your diet for a couple weeks? I said, do you think you could handle that? Can you, can you handle a couple weeks just to see what the difference in your body is? And all of a sudden the irritable bowel started to, to clear up. Okay. So what else did the doctor tell you is insignificant that isn't insignificant that you are allowed to eat just because you like it? And I know you like the flavor in that moment, but do you like the irritable bowel? <laughs> do you like, <laughs> I, you know, it's like, it's like asking somebody, do you like having diabetes? No, but I really like the wine and the, and the alcohol and, and the sugar and the, right. And the bread. Okay, but do you like the diabetes? Because you're going to have to live with the diabetes long after the taste of that bread, the mm -hmm. taste of that wine. The diabetes is going to be with you. Do you like having a memory? They're calling um, Alzheimer's and dementia now type 3 diabetes. Type 3 diabetes. Yeah. Right. So do you like having a memory? Do you like the thoughts and the memories that you have of your life? Because... If you like them, then you'll stop doing the certain thing that you're doing that you like a little bit, but you like the memories more. Which one is, which one is more important? Which one is going to, you know, to you, right? Now, mm -hmm. if you're a smoker and it's more important for you to smoke than to be able to breathe, all, by all means, you're making, you're an adult, you're making a choice, right? But if you don't know that that's your choice because all you know is the habit, then think about it differently, right? So I'm a hypnotherapist uh, is one of the things that I've trained in. And we work with people who have habits. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the thing that I always started with was the question, is the habit worth the consequence? Because in some cases it is to that person. I'm going to die anyway, some point, as you said earlier in this conversation. So why not die young and die <laughs> happy, right? Okay. But right. 
happy having the lung cancer and being in the hospital for the two years that you're in the hospital. And do you, do you like the radiation? You know, is the radiation worth it? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's, so I'll, it may be living that you want to do, but are you going to kill yourself as soon as you get the cancer? You know? <laughs> right. So I want to ask you now, so you're a hypnotherapist. Am I right in my understanding that in order to have somebody be in a suggestive state that you're working really more with the theta brain waves than you, that's really the, the, the brain wave or that frequency, forgive me if I'm not explaining it right, but, but you want to be in theta or you rather you want the, the person being hypnotized to, to achieve that theta brain wave state, similar to sleep or like creative play, like a child, that's that nebulous, kind of anything and nothing exists all at once. And that's a malleable and moldable kind of mindset to be in. Right. You want to be in rubber brain. Yeah. I call it, I call theta. So, okay. So there are, because, and you actually use it as the example, like with a smoker, I know, I know people that one, I know people that smoked, you know, two packs of lucky strikes a day for 40 years and, and died of, I don't know, a stroke that had nothing to do with respiratory issues or atherosclerosis or emphysema. Lungs were crystal clear. And I know people that smoked that were on oxygen. And the doctor said, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. And they didn't stop smoking. It's not that they didn't want to stop smoking. They just, they couldn't stop smoking. They couldn't find themselves in the identity of them where reality existed, where they weren't a smoker. That was, they, they, they attached such strong identity to that practice or to that feeling or the sensations that despite, you know, knowing they're not going to get to see their grandchild be born, they continued to do this. And that's a guilt that, you know, I think we all are probably going to end up passing with some guilt, but I, I think that when we get to that level, it becomes extremely difficult for people to change their experience of reality because they're so they're, they're so habituated to be a different person, which is why I would call up a hypnotherapist and say, hey, help me stop you know, stress eating or help me stop doing this. You would get me into rubber brain state. And then you know, from there, I, I can almost put the pieces or you would help me put the pieces back where they need to go, not where they kind of just fell in the first place. Right. So there are, there are, and I use this term lightly in this case, meditation techniques and breathing techniques that help you kind of find that theta state, which incidentally is the same brain state where children up until the age of, I think it's six or seven reside in some children more than others, but that's that imaginative play. My three-year-old daughter is always in a state of play. She's always, you know, one of the Paw Patrol characters running around. And when I say always, I mean, always say, good morning, Amelia. She's like, I'm baby Ryder. I'm not Amelia. And she's off. And but there comes a point in a child's development where it switches and they can no more, you know, they basically have to, light that ship on fire and and get on to a new one. Now there are breathing techniques and they're accessible. I'm sure you can find them if you look and meditation techniques, same thing. I don't want to promote anybody, but there are ways that we can find that headspace and kind of reprogram it ourselves to a degree. Now I think that there's a certain significant advantage in having somebody walk me through that or, or show me which, rocks to step on in my journey and and kind of reorganizing my brain 
but there are some self-guided ways that that people can achieve that that rubber brain state and maybe not achieve such a suggestive be so subject to suggestion without the help of somebody but but certainly to a degree that they may be able to influence their behavior tomorrow and the next day and the next day right. um, by simply finding a, a clean slate and being able to observe a different consciousness, if you will. So, yeah, I, I go back to thinking about the person that, that was a smoker until the day that they died. And the doctor said, this is it, you know, you're either going to stop now or you're going to die tomorrow. And, and I, and I blame that person, but I also don't blame that person. And I know that we feel a lot about that with, with food. There's a lot of stress eaters. There's a lot of people that are obese. And it's gotten to the point now where we've been taught to embrace unhealthy bodies as opposed to finding a place of better health with our bodies. Right. So, so, you know, I, I think there's good. So I, I don't want to shame somebody who's obese i've i I, i've recently lost 100 absolutely not pounds right i've lost 140 something pounds the brain tumor i went on i went on a massive like plan not one that Mm -hmm. i recommend to anybody else but um because it, it included a divorce and and a lot of emotional release and a lot of like hours and hours and hours in a mirror crying and um and like 40 day fast and then a, a, a 10 day uh, water cleanse after the fast and then another fast after that. I mean, it was like one after another, I was like massively cleaning because the doctors have told me I'll never lose weight until the day I die. I mean, that, that was really the, the prognosis that they gave me was you will, no matter how much you exercise, no matter what you eat, you'll continually gain weight because of the hormone imbalances that are being affected. So I don't want to shame Mm. anybody, but what I want to do is educate them. It's not Mm. that it's not good for you to be fat because you're a bad person because you're fat. It's not right. It's not like you would shame somebody for having cancer. They have a disease and the disease is caused by the system that we've created, which is why my favorite saying is we Mm. made this shit up. We can make it up better because we made up the systems that we're living by and the systems we're living Mm -hmm. by are causing you to be fat. And that doesn't make you an odd or evil or, you know, or, or a person that lacks self-control even your gut. We've, we've, we know this now we've studied this now for like five, six years. It's fairly new science about microbiome and gut and the control it has on our brain. And that's where I want to get to with that is, your gut has more bacteria than cells are in your body of you, right? So if you have 7 trillion cells and the gut bacteria is about 30 trillion, I don't know, 150 trillion, it's up there. They have more control over your brain than you do in some Mm -hmm. cases. And so they can smell a donut and start salivating. You can not even smell it. You could see a picture of a donut and start salivating because of the gut bacteria is going, ooh, sugar. Now, when you clean yourself out, when you detoxify yourself and clean yourself out and, and reproduce good microbiome or good healthy gut bacteria, 
you look at a donut and it doesn't look good anymore. It didn't have anything to do with you controlling your mind or programming your mind. It had to do mm -hmm. with cleaning out your second mind, which is your gut. So that's where I think people don't want, we don't want to shame anybody. We don't want to tell people they're bad. We don't want, it's not your fault is what I like to tell. It's not your fault. The society and the system that we've created is designed to keep you and make you sick. And it's designed that way specifically. It has no other purpose than to keep you sick. The healthcare system is the exact same way. It's procedure-based versus results-based. The incentive is to do more procedures, not to get a good result, right? That's the, that's the incentive system of the healthcare system. It's the same thing with agricultural. The incentive is to make more, make more bigger. So you can't, it's, it's no longer okay to have a small piece of corn. You got to have a big piece of corn. It's not okay to have small mm -hmm. carrot. You got to have a huge carrot, right? So we hybridize and we make things because the purpose that it, you know, of the purpose of try out new things and study stuff, but that doesn't mean that we should be eating the stuff that they're trying out and studying, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? So I, I want to, I want to comment though. If, if Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. I apologize. I, and I just want to be clear. I wasn't demonizing or vilifying anybody that was overweight, nor was I shaming them. I mean, as a fitness professional in 20 years, I've helped, I've helped a lot of people achieve health in all different body sizes um, relative to their their comfort, their potential, and, and their wishes. Um, my, my point was simply that what we're doing, and this is kind of to your point too, is that we are, in many ways, we're glorifying the habits that lead to illness. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with, I mean, even using the word overweight is, is improper because over what weight, over my, the weight that I choose for you, or over the weight that you choose for you, what exactly is overweight. So, but what it is, is that I, I think that we've gotten so comfortable with certain conditions and, and, and we'll call them body shapes, which do predispose us to certain other morbidities, right? So whether it's diabetes and type two diabetes, we know that, that, that that's an overweight, we can cure that, okay? And, and we can cure that in a very easy and simple way easier said than done but but that's that was really my point so so by no means that i did i mean to to insult or even approach a, a place where somebody would have taken offense to that because that's certainly not the case not not whatsoever yeah but i do want to comment on the healthcare system we don't we don't have a healthcare system in this country we have a disease care system in this country and because there's no money in the cure there's only money in the treatment that we need to keep people sick and we need to keep people unwell because for, we, we can't prescribe marijuana for certain things, but I can prescribe to you a drug that Pfizer made that is identical to the compound in marijuana that's going to cure things because I can't, I can't patent an organism. I can't patent a natural organism, which is, I'm not even going to bring that up, but so, so they go about it their own way and, and they make this artificial version of it, the synthetic version of it that they can market and they can sell. So absolutely, it's not healthcare, it's disease care. 
And I think that, that doctors and physicians, and thank God that they're here, thank God for the healthcare community. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for medicine and, and doctors practicing medicine and learning and continuing their education. But what we need to be careful of, and it, it, doctors do this in a, in a more circumstantial way, I think, than, than any of us do, though we all do it, is that doctors don't necessarily only prescribe the cure. Doctors also prescribe the illness. And, and there's a, a tremendous amount of evidence that suggests that a doctor can make you sick by telling you that you're sick. And I've experienced this in my own way. We had talked about uh, my lumbar spine earlier in our conversation. Uh, this is an old injury. I had gone to a surgeon about, I don't know, 12 years ago, had him look at the MRI and, and it hurt. I, I couldn't get my head on top of it. It hurt so much and it hurt and everything that I did. So he's looking at the MRI, young guy, and I'm, I'm friendly with him. He's like, Matt, I, I, I see your MRI. I can see where you're having pain, but I've seen MRIs that look far worse than this. And this isn't one of the worst ones that I've seen. If you're telling me that your condition is such that it causes great pain and you want to have the surgery, I see justification to have the surgery. But if you were to ask me as a doctor and a case study and showed me the films without the person of the story and asked me if this person is a candidate for a fusion, I would tell you probably not. So it's completely up to you what we do here. I said, perfect, that's all I needed to know is it's still up to me. Fast forward to three years ago, um, back pain started to kind of seep its way back into my life and my daily routines. It was impacting my exercises and the things that I did. I went back to the same surgeon, obviously the condition in my spine and the discs had progressed. The first words out of his mouth were, so Mr. Scarfo, when are we going to schedule your fusion? And it was like the lights went out and somebody just cut the, cut the power to the, to the record player music stopped. And I sat there and the moment after he said it, I felt it in a whole new way. And I maybe being a hypnotherapist, this, this probably has some interesting tenets to it. I left his office. I said, you know what, let me go home and think about it. I walked out of his office, walking down the stairs and I was furious. I was pissed off. I called my wife on the phone on the way to the car. And I'm like, that son of a, she's like, what happened? I was like, the first words out of his mouth were Matt, when are we going to schedule your surgery? And my back hasn't hurt more now, any more in my life than it has right now. It hurts more now than it did when I walked into the office. She's like, so what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Are you going to get the surgery? I said, I hope not. It took me months to little by little when I would feel it, I wouldn't let it stick. I would just kind of let it come and let it go and carry on with my life, really trying to put into practice, where is that red line of my comfort or my discomfort? When is it actually a problem or when am I just perceiving it as being a nuisance? And it took me about a year to peel that back and get back to where I was. Now, there's no question that now the condition has progressed even more uh, just because of the wear and tear and the things that I do. There's no question that if he were to look at it, he would, he would agree. But the fact that he had suggested that to me and the power of suggestion made that reality. So in my head, and I almost had to forget about the person that I was when I heard that and start over and ask myself, okay, if I didn't know anything about my history, if I didn't know anything about my past or my injury history, and I woke up right now in this body, would I think that my back needed a surgery? And the answer was no. Would I be confident that I could run two or three, four or five miles? The answer is, yeah, I think I could. So I had to forget everything that I thought I knew and 
and relearn it all from day one as a you know 37 38 year old guy that had this history of injury but i had to forget that history and and, and promise myself that i was going to relearn it so it's it's a tough spot for a doctor because doctors first do no harm but they don't i don't think that it's it's conscious in them in their in the forefront of their minds that the things that they say mean something and if it is if it confirms right confirmation bias if it confirms something that i kind of thought boom this was this was it this was exactly what i needed to hear so i knew that i was right if it doesn't confirm what my, what i had thought it forces me to question what it is and then reevaluate what it is and then maybe agree with the professional that that sees it knows it and has experience with it now granted we're not talking about heart issues and kidney disease and other things that will manifest quite quickly but in terms of the the mechanics of things only i know what that feels like and where the problem lies so it, it's important that we take the advice of the professionals that are around us but we also temper that with some of our own common sense and, and experiment with it so they they treat disease they do not do healthcare i think that the ground the, the the healthcare workers that are working in the trenches the nurses the nurses the radiologists the phlebotomists everybody else and even the doctors all have the greatest intentions to help but i don't think that we are all sitting at the same table and having a conversation with who is your treatment really benefiting who is your prognosis really benefiting is it benefiting me over the long term is it a sufficient diagnosis or is it a proper diagnosis and also is it a sufficient treatment or or a proper treatment so um i think that we're up against probably the same size machine that we were up against 25 years ago when when the tobacco industry was trying to convince us that tobacco didn't kill people and that they had a a reasonable obligation to not put any additives in their cigarettes that would cause illness or harm um and they and they promised they swore up and down to congress that 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 wasn't the case that it's a safe product and we knew better right and i think that we know that now it just seems that you know for, for, the pharmaceutical companies seem to uh, seem to have a monopoly right now, and um, we just have to wait for enough people to come disenfranchise that you know the right people involved start investigating it. But uh, yeah. but I, I I agree with what you said. Yeah, you know here here's the uh, the we well you know this has been a very good conversation, and and I completely appreciate you and and that uh, I don't like to talk badly about majority of doctors because they're just like me only their training is different than my training mm -hmm. they, they've been trained in medicine and disease control and i've been trained in how to create an optimal healthy body and i did you know and i went the route i went because the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me for so long that i had to you know go find out for myself what was wrong but so I don't like talking about the system is, is to me, it's the system, it's the money and the system. So the agricultural system is now linked to the pharmaceutical system. And agropharma, yep. that's linked is Bayer and Monsanto just connected. They've become a conglomerate. 
So you have the largest mm -hmm. agribusiness in the world that controls, I think it's about 80 to 90% of the world food market. And you have Bayer, who is the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Both of them have agendas to make their companies bigger and more have more control. And so if you have the food that makes you sick and you have the pills that treat your sickness, you've got a perpetual money machine. And so who is the biggest donor at any university that teaches medical school? It's the pharmaceutical companies. They're the biggest donor. They are in there by the sixth month. They, are, they have already been on your kids' butts about, the medica, about medica, medicine, about pharmaceuticals. And so if by the sixth month in school, uh, in medical school, you're already been indoctrinated to that way of thinking, that's all you're going to be trained in. So that's where I encourage people to, um, to really interview their doctor versus just going to a doctor that somebody recommends. Interview them, find out what it is that they believe, find out what it is, is that their training gives them uh, authority over. And most people don't do that, but what is it that, that they have authority over? Do they have any outside training in any other specialties or any other modalities other than just the medicine? Because a well-rounded, you know, thinker is better than an unwell-rounded <laughs> unwell thinker. And so sure. anyway, that, that's just my, my suggestion for, for people. So we got to end this. Unfortunately, I could, I could probably talk to you for another 10 hours, but um, I have another, another interview coming up in a few minutes. So uh, why don't you give the audience three, I know you've already done it a number of times during the conversation, but three, just to sum up, actionable, doable things that they can do to create a new tomorrow today for themselves. Sure. So three things. One, um, create the habit of breathing through your nose and not through your mouth. Use your mouth for eating, not for breathing. Um, for, for all of the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Second one is move deliberately. So whatever space you're occupying or whatever space you are moving to occupy, whether it's during exercise or, or standing up from a restful situation in a couch and walking to your fridge, feel your body move through space. Part of the reason why we feel like time moves so quickly anymore is because we're the, the things that we look forward to are happening in the future as opposed to happening right now. We need to be present. So when you're exercising and you're doing a bench press, it's important not to just bang that weight up off your chest, but as you lower it, feel the tensions as they accumulate in the different parts of your body that are responsible for governing that movement. Feel your triceps lengthen under tension as you lower that weight. Feel them shorten under tension as you press that weight up off of your chest. Everything. Be in your body, be in the moment, and be present. And then the third thing, I, you know, I'm going to go off of what your last comment was, and that would be to interview your doctor. Uh, I certainly didn't mean to, and if that was the impression that I gave, lump all doctors into this big grand category. But I, I want to expand on it just a little bit that in the sense that I'm a runner and I'm an exerciser. 
I make sure that my doctor is also a runner and an exerciser and shares the most important parts of me with them because they can sympathize, they can empathize. As a runner, my doc, if I have a foot injury, my doctor is going to tell me as a runner how I should manage that, not just as a patient. And they don't know what running even feels like. They don't know what it means to me. They don't know those things. Now, that's not going to change their it's not going to change their advice necessarily, but it'll, it'll help them. It'll help me feel like they're talking to me and not at me. So I think when picking your healthcare team or your personal health team, it's important for you to find people that share interests with you, but just have a greater level of experience or education in their respective field, whether it's human movement science or, or nutrition science or you know, doctors or so on. So uh, breathe through your nose, be present in your body, be present in the moment whenever you move and everything that you do. And then also make sure that your healthcare team is a team of people that you trust that you can rely on and that share the same recreational interests as you this way. The advice that they give you is contextual and not just general and vague. Awesome. And how can people get a hold of you if they want to work with you? Sure. So I just started a, a blog online, mattscarfo.com. Uh, it's where I've seems to be a, a catch-all for all of the content that uh, that I produce and that I'm a part of. You can easily reach me there. LinkedIn, you can find me, Matt Scarfo. Um, Matt Scarfo, just about everywhere. LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, mattscarfo.com. So um, even if you're not interested in, in having me help you or work with you in any way, I'm, I'm always interested in having great conversations with interesting people. And um, I try to learn as much as I can from everybody that I meet. So even though it might not be a, a monetary arbitrage. It can certainly be a, an intellectual one. Absolutely. I've enjoyed our uh, intellectual arbitrage today and <laughs> to doing it again and, and uh, you know, working with you maybe in the future. So creating some win-wins and collaborations, because I, I think if we do that, we can really, you know, as we come together, we create momentum and movement and we can move mountains when we, uh, when we work together. So anyway, thank you so much. Uh, Absolutely. To Ari Gronich. And this has been another episode of Create a New Tomorrow, where we are helping people create their new tomorrow today. Thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to seeing you and hearing you at the next one. Remember to like, comment, and review. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.